I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the story of the man who brought Matt Busby to Manchester United, who created the country's first ever organised scouting network, who without whom Manchester United could have been called Manchester Celtic. This is the man who helped to set up the Manchester United Academy and who helped to save the club from bankruptcy twice. You're listening to United Through Time. All of the factors that made Manchester United great happened on Louis Rocker's watch. This man is Louis Rocker and this is United Through Time. A second-generation Italian immigrant, Rocca is known as the father or grandfather of Manchester United, or at least he is to those who have heard of him. Rocca dedicated 60 years of his life to Manchester United as he went from a 12-year-old T-boy to kit man to groundsman to assistant manager to chief scout. He marks the start of United Through Time, the new podcast delving into Manchester United's long and famous history. This is episode one, and we start with a man who is criminally unknown. Going in chronological order, United Through Time will focus on the most important individuals at the club since Manchester United was founded as Newton Heath in 1878. I'm Harry Robinson, your host, and I'll be happily welcoming on a number of guests over the series. And on this episode, we hear from Tony Rea and Paddy Barkley. So, to begin, Louis Rocker, the father of Manchester United Football Club. At 4.30am on June the 13th, 1950, Louis Rocker died following an operation at a private patient's home at the Manchester Royal Infirmary. Manchester United, Red and White, Old Trafford, the Academy, these are the things that make this club what it is. Its name, its colours, its towering enormous stadium, its record of young local players. And every single one of these things was brought in and developed during the time of Louis Rocker. Almost six decades of contribution to the club in every role you can think of. From a 1902 bazaar to save the club from bankruptcy the first time, to an incident that could be called Turkeygate in 1931. From Magnell to Busby, from the 1909 Cup final to the 1948 edition, Rocker was an immense force at United and in English football. His death in that June of 1950 was sent to Matt Busby by Cablegram, Manchester United won a tour of the United States and Canada and were just about to play against the FA touring side in Toronto. Busby told his players in the dressing room of the news. For Matt, this was the man who had given him a ready-made side with which to create the first of his three great teams at Old Trafford. It was a team that lifted the 1948 FA Cup. That had been two years earlier. It was United's second triumph in the competition. The first time had been back in 1909 under Ernest Magnell. Of the 22 players in total who played in those two finals in 1909 and 1948, Rocker had brought at least 15 to United himself. Charismatic, scheming, inventive and everyone's old pal, Louis Rocker had been the heart of Manchester United for more than half a century. He had bid Busby and the United players off as they prepared for their long flight to New York and he'd bid them well and his last words were to tell them to be ready for another crack at the League and Cup double. Louis Rocker was laid to rest on June the 16th at Moston Cemetery with many former United men in attendance, including the great Billy Meredith. A piece of the old Trafford turf was placed on his grave. In 1902, the club had been renamed. Rocker was involved. In 1907, he became chief scout. All the way later, in 1944, he'd written a letter to Sergeant Matt Busby informing his old pal of a great job he had in mind for him. 
1948, Matt reaped the rewards of more than a decade's work of rockers, scouring Manchester for the finest young talents and providing Busby with a fantastic team. But the, the quality of what was bequeathed by Louis Rocker to Matt was quite incredible. And this was the second manager he'd done this for at United, having given Ernest Magnell the tools and the players to bring United their first ever big trophies in the early 1900s. Two cup finals in 1909 and 1948 had Rocker written all over them. But before, after and between, there's a fascinating story of great importance to Manchester United, of emollient charm, resourcefulness, inventiveness and determination. So here we go. Louis Rocker had been born in 1882 to Italian immigrants in Ancoats. There's little that links the pretty woodland town of Borthanasca in Italy, about 20 miles east of Genoa in the north of the peninsula, and Ancoats, the inner city area of Manchester, known as a death black spot during Britain's Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. Perhaps Rocca is the only thing. Louis Rocca Jr. anglicised his name from Luigi. That was his birth name, which he shared with his father, who was 27 in 1865, when he decided to leave unstable and poverty-stricken Italy in search of a secure life with employment in rapidly developing Great Britain. The process of Italian reunification was nearly at an end and had started as early as 35 years before. The Rockers lived in Piedmont in northern Italy, where life was more stable than in most other areas during reunification. And so rather than leaving due to any political reasons, we can safely say that Luigi Rocca Sr. left, as his brother Giovanni Battista did, in 1865 in search of work and prosperity. Tony Ria, the authority on Italian immigration into Ancoats and author of Manchester's Little Italy, says as much when he described to me the reasons for Italians coming to Manchester in this period. They came here because it was the, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. They may have come for work. Some of them left because of, of, uh, of poverty. Some of them left for opportunity. Those were the words of a former Italian Prime Minister De Zeglio in 1865 in his memoirs. Italy has been made, now we must make Italians. But Luigi Roccasini had no intention of becoming an Italian in the new Italian state and sought a better life elsewhere. Somehow, he ended up in Ancoats in northern Manchester and in doing so moved from the beautiful green hills and blue skies of northern Italy to the dark, damp, smelly, dangerous and industrialised area of northern Manchester. But he wasn't alone as an Italian, nor as an immigrant. The Italians and the Irish came in their droves to find work in Manchester as they did in many other major cities. But Manchester was a smokestack Silicon Valley of its day, a key cog in the Industrial Revolution. Many Italians walked on foot all the way through the hills and mountains of France and Switzerland just to get to Manchester and Britain. Their desire to be there was clearly no small thing. In Ancoats, an area called Little Italy formed, just as it did in Clerkenwell in London and around St. Joseph's Church in Liverpool. Hundreds of Italians arrived in Ancoats between 1865 and 1900, particularly in the latter stages of the 19th century. In 1891, for example, there were 600 Italians in Ancoats, and that number doubled to over 1,200 in 1901, ten years later. The Rockers were some of the earliest then, having arrived back in 1865. Tony Rea, who grew up in Ancoats himself later on, explains what it would have been like in the days of Louis Rocker in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Ancoats was a poor area, so, so they, they went out with uh, chestnut, uh, they went out with the barrel organ, they had dancing bears, they had monkeys, they, you know, Ancoats was alive. Um, Ancoats was a vibrant place, especially with the immigrants that had settled there, because you had Irish immigrant, Italian immigrant, you had Jewish people who had businesses in the area who lived in Cheetah Mill. So it was a melting pot, really, of different nationalities. And there was a lot of poverty in that area, but the Italians created um, a little community and, and established themselves with traditions from, from the old country and, you know, they, they transported all that to, to, to Manchester. It became known as Little Italy. You would have Italian cooking smells, you know, you'd have the, the smell of the milk wafting up through the, the, the cellar. That's where they made the ice cream in those days. The music that would be playing, you know, there was accordions every night around there, you know, playing music, singing, they'd be up till midnight. You know, the area was alive with lots of things going on. 
they lived in like uh, two ups and two downs. They had 11 children, you know, or five children, you know, they had big families. Still today, there's a vibrant Italian community in that part of Manchester. What you can hear coming on in the background now is the annual Italian procession in Manchester that begins on George Lee Street in Ancoats. This vibrant community is where Louis Rocca was born, to Luigi Rocca Sr., the Italian immigrant from the Genoa area of Italy, and to his father's wife, an Italian girl called Maria Cassinelli from Sheffield. On his marriage certificate with Maria in 1868, Luigi Rocca Sr. had declared himself as a musician. Some family records indicate he could have been a good violinist, but it's possible he was doing what Tony Rear described many Italians as doing, playing barrel organs while walking down the street with dancing monkeys to earn money. By 1872, though, the Rocker family had started an ice cream business. Most Italian ice cream makers, like the Rockers, didn't come over in such a role. Instead, they fell into it, having arrived as musicians, barometer makers, artisans of some sort. Italians in Ancoats decided on ice cream because ingredients were cheap and Ancoats was near the iceworks. It was a perfect business in some ways. And so by 1872, earlier than many, many other successful businesses that would later be set up in Manchester, the Rockers were involved. Louis Rocker, the family, established themselves in the ice cream business in 1872. So they were one of the oldest in the ice cream industry, the Rocker family. And they, they like my family, um, you know, they bought ex-public houses eventually, you know, where, where they could make ice cream and have a shop and also have the living accommodation that these old pubs had. And Louis Rocker... His family were successful in the ice cream business. They also manufactured biscuits, um, you know, the cones for, for the ice cream. You know, um, they were very successful, the Rocker family in Manchester. Louis Rocker would have been helping the family business then when he stumbled across Manchester United, then known as Newton Heath. The ice cream businesses really were a family thing. Tony Rear, for example, used to sit on the back of his dad's ice cream truck, collecting the money while his dad handed out the ice creams. It's likely Louis would have been in the basement helping make the ice creams or in the shop upstairs selling it. In 1878, a group of workers at the carriage and wagon department of the massive Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company set up a football team for the workers at Newton Heath, and thus Manchester United was founded as Newton Heath LYR Football Club, with the LYR standing for Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway. Almost all football teams around this time were as a result of manual labour workers coming together, and many of these came in railway companies. To begin with then, Newton Heath were playing against other departments of the LYR company and other teams dotted around Lancashire and Yorkshire. As football grew as an organised sport, the club joined the combination in 1888, a regional football league that was wholly unsuccessful as it failed to complete even a single season. Instead, Newton Heath became members of the newly formed Football Alliance, which would later go on to be merged with the Evergreen Football League. Louis Rocker was born in 1882, and so in the 1892-93 season, when United began their life in the Football League in the First Division, he was 9 or 10 years old. By now, Newton Heath had become an independent team, separate from the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company, and so had dropped the LYR from their name and moved to a new home ground at Bank Street, where they'd stay for a couple of decades. This also meant, importantly, that they lost the funding of the LYR company. Newton Heath weren't the most glamorous of clubs, but football wasn't the most glamorous of sports, and in Manchester, success was not yet ingrained in the football culture, as it is now with United and City. After a couple of seasons in the first division, Newton Heath were relegated to the second division. They'd actually finished bottom of the league in their debut season, but stayed up by way of a playoff between the bottom place first division side and the second division champions. They beat Birmingham City, then known as Small Heath, and so stayed up. The next year in 1894, though, they weren't so lucky in the playoffs and went down having lost to second division winners Liverpool. And this is where Rocker starts to enter the fray. He first made his mark on Manchester United, who was still Newton Heath at the time, somewhere between the ages of 8 and 12. Rocker tells a story of how he got his first job at Newton Heath, just as an 8-year-old. He tells this in a newspaper called The Topical Times, which he did a number of articles for in 1935. This was written on February 2nd, 1935, in a piece called My Football Ups and Downs. He says, I first joined the club when I was about 8 years old. I used to sneak under the boards. One day I was caught. I was promised a hiding. 
said I to the man who caught me. Never mind the walloping. Please can I watch the match? Rocker shot the man who was set to give him that hiding, and so was told he had to make the tea and coffee for the players and clean out the baths to avoid punishment. Rocker loved this, and Rocker was involved with the club from around the age of 10 and would be until his death in 1950, 55 to 60 years later, by which time Manchester United, an unknown concept at that moment in time, would have won the league and cup multiple times and would be on its way to becoming the biggest club in the world. As Rocker grew older, he grew in importance at Newton Heath. As a teenager, he was responsible for looking after the kits of the first team, which was quite a lofty position for someone of his age. Rocker strikes me as this cheeky, cocky youngster who probably wanted to tell everyone that he worked for the big local football club. In that Topical Times piece I mentioned, he says, When I got my official job, I was certainly the big shot around where I lived. There was no office for Newton Heath Football Club. Most of the players at the time were still workers in the local Newton Heath area, as well as Clayton and Bradford Pitt. There were also a few involved from the Aniline Chemical Works, which ran next to the new Bank Street ground in Clayton. But while there was no official office, the journalists from various Manchester papers had built themselves a little hut at the bottom end of the Bank Street ground. And so Louis Rocker and the other volunteers shared that little press up to do whatever was necessary just to keep the club running. Money was definitely not in abundance. The players didn't expect money to be regular and there was no way it could be. They didn't even know if they'd be refunded for their rail fare to the game. Ironically, given United had been started, set up, by a railway company. Rocker was one of a number of volunteers and was now also tending to the ground and pitch as well as the playing strips. He described his and the others' role once. We tended the ground, did running repairs to the hoardings and club quarters, and did the scouting jobs around local teams. Now this is where Rocker and scouting are first mentioned together. His influence on scouting at United, but also in English football as a whole, is significant in later years. Here, it was casual, a part of a wider job, of a job where Rocker and others shared pretty much everything at Newton Heath to keep it going. He and a few others filled the role of groundsman, kitman, t-boy, scout and anything else you could think of. United were far from a rich club, and the situation was worsening as the 19th century faded out into the 1900s, and the first year of that 20th century was the worst so far. The club had stopped being supported by the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company many years before this, but things were now coming to a fore. Creditors were demanding money that Newton East simply didn't have. An official receiver was brought in, and with Rocker now one of a few who were doing everything at the club despite being only 18 at the time, he was heavily involved in a process that changed Newton East forever. Quite literally. Manchester United! Manchester! Manchester United! Going back to that Topical Times article I mentioned earlier, written by Louis Rocker in 1935, the Italian claims that it was he who came up with the name Manchester United. This is the first of three really significant things that Rocker gave to Man United. Harold Riley, who was signed up by Rocker as a schoolboy, but turned down a career as a footballer to become an artist, once said of Rocker that he gave United three great gifts. Their name, Matt Busby, and the scouting system. Now, Rocker naming United is a dubious claim. But let's take things back to the reason why United were being renamed, changed from Newton Heath. The club were no longer playing in Newton Heath, and so the name and the nickname the Heathens was inappropriate alone. So too was another nickname, the Railway Lads. Newton Heath hadn't been associated with the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company since the 1890s. On a practical level, many visiting teams and supporters were constantly frustrated by Newton Heath as they turn up to Newton Heath the area, expecting to find their game, only to discover an empty and dilapidated pitch. They'd then have to run across town to arrive a few minutes before kick-off at the new Bank Street ground in Clayton. Whether this was an advantage for United or not is unclear, but given their woeful performances, it seems unlikely. But the real reason, or shall I say the main reason, was a man called John Davies, the first of two saviours in Manchester United's history. It was he who demanded a change in the name of the club. United had been in dire financial straits, as I explained, and an official receiver had been brought in. Players were receiving hardly anything for their efforts. One story about centre-forward Harry Boyd shows the situation on a slightly more humorous level. At this time, players were being paid by splitting the gate receipts. Boyd was given seven shillings sixpence after one game and stood there, looking at the money in his hand for a while and then put it in his pocket, remarking, Well, that means another Sunday in bed for me. A director was listening and asked why. Boyd replied, My best suit is pawned for 15 shillings. A whip round was made and Boyd's money was made up for him and thankfully this meant that Boyd could go to Sunday Mass but it shows the state of the club on a slightly funnier level. But on a more serious note, Newton Heath would have had to fold as a club if no one had come in. Manchester United would have disappeared into the abyss before they'd even begun properly. 
Tony Rea suggested to me that Louis Rocker came into the Italian community in Ancoats and asked for help from the richer of the families in the area. The story goes, he came into the community, into the Italian community, and he asked various families who had money to put money in to help, to help him and, and to establish United. And they all laughed at him and said, there's no money in football. Whether those richer Italian families lived to see the day that football became one of the biggest industries in the world is not known. But we can't blame them for not foreseeing that. Anyway, that plan had no success. To another Harry now, not Harry Boyd, but Harry Stafford, the captain of United who contributed a huge amount to the club over many years as a player, captain and later manager. He, like Rocker, had been asking anyone he could to save the club. With Newton Eve in a terrible situation, Stafford came up with the idea of holding a bazaar to raise money. This was quite common for football clubs in this era. The bazaar was to be held at St James's Hall on the Oxford Road in Manchester. The entire thing was a failure. Newton Heath had to pay to rent the hall. They hired musicians and bands to play at the bazaar and sold food. But they only raised £300, which was nowhere near enough. They had to raise 2670 just to save the club from bankruptcy, let alone rebuild. It was a flop, but it did produce one thing. Harry Stafford had been asking anyone he could if they could contribute to help the club stay afloat, and he ended up stumbling upon John Henry Davies, and all because of a dog and Louis Rocker. Rocker was guarding St James's Hall at night each day to ensure the small takings that Newton Heath did get were kept safe. Rocker and a man called Albert Rowlands won guard when they heard a noise from the hall. Both jumping up, they went to inspect as a fireman who was on duty also came to investigate. Rocker writes that, In the darkness, a pair of green eyes were plainly seen. They were the eyes of Major, the St. Bernard dog. Rocker claims the fireman died for the door, but Major ran past him. The dog had a collecting box strapped to his back, having been going around the city's pubs collecting loose change. It had been emptied, but it was causing havoc with this small metal box and was now lost in the dark of the Mancunian night on the Oxford Road. The dog was Harry Stafford's, the captain of United, and a teammate noticed an advert in a local paper a couple of days later, saying that St. Bernard had been found. It was in a pub owned by the Manchester Brewery which was itself owned by John Davies. Davies had been looking for such a dog to be a gift to his daughter. Quite how Stafford and Davies then met and discussed Newton Heath later to be Manchester United is unclear. Many have claimed slightly different stories. Rocker claims Davies told Stafford he had it at the King's Hotel on the Oxford Road and Stafford went to pick it up, where he told Davies of the struggles. Jim White suggests in his book Manchester United The Biography that Davies and Stafford both turned up at the pub to collect Major the Dog at the same time, very conveniently, and they spoke and Stafford told the rich brewer of his club's struggles. In return for saving the club, Stafford would give Davies his dog. Either way, Davies sympathised as a proud Mancunian and a sports lover and called a meeting of supporters on the 26th of April 1902 at the New Islington Hall in Ancoats, Rocker's hometown. Here, Davies agreed to foster the club if three to four more people were willing to help. Mr W Deacon, Mr J Taylor and Mr J Brown were those three more people and thus Newton Heath were saved. Major had chosen well, for Davies was both a rich businessman and a man who had inherited a great deal of money. United couldn't have wished for a better saviour than a slightly portly man with a fine handlebar moustache. It was time to modernise, thought Davies. He wasn't going to waste any time faffing about after saving Newton Heath and it was that name that he didn't like. It was increasingly unpopular, and the club hadn't even played at Newton Heath for almost a decade. Here's where Rocker claims he came in. At the New Islington Hall, the possible name of Manchester Celtic was dismissed as it was too partisan, too Catholic. Manchester Central sounded too much like a railway station. 19 years of age then, Louis Rocker claims he stood up, and his idea of Manchester United was much liked. Manchester United sounded good. Everyone present supposedly agreed it was a great idea, according to Rocker, and Rocker says he came up with it. Proof of this has never manifested itself from anyone but Rocker. In fact, there's a great deal of proof against the idea, as I'll outline in a second. This is similar to much at the time. The story of Major the St. Bernard dog saving the club was likely exaggerated a great deal, but mythology helped at the time, and with the club in dire straits, no one was going to deny a story, which only increased the attention given to the new Manchester United football club. The main reason I doubt that Rocker came up with Manchester United's name is because reports in the local newspapers at the time quite clearly contradict the story. The Manchester Evening News, the Manchester Guardian and the Lancashire Courier all stated something along the lines that Before the meeting broke up, one old supporter suggested that the name of the club should be changed to Manchester United, but this did not meet with much favour. 
It hardly paints a picture of Rocker's story that he, a cheeky 19-year-old, stood up and suggested the name and suddenly everyone loved it. Now, it remains possible that Rocker did suggest it, either overhearing it from someone or vice versa. Another possibility is that, as per the Evening Chronicle report, the name was not decided at the meeting, but a couple of weeks later, when Rocker may have suggested it to John Davies or someone else. We don't know and we never will, but Rocker always insisted that it was his idea. There's no evidence of that. The only thing we know for certain is that he um, attended uh, the meeting, as he would have attended any meeting remotely to do with Newton Heath stroke Manchester United. What is for certain, though, is that Rocker was at the meeting and that this was not the end of his association with the new Manchester United. A name change had been one thing, but Davies also wanted to change the colours for the new Manchester United. Green and gold were Newton Heath colours, although they'd actually been changed to blue and white in the latter years, which isn't always documented. Thankfully not sky blue, though. John Davies wanted red and white, and so the famous red and white of Manchester United was born. Rocker's role after this point did not immediately change much, although he was head of ground committee by 1903 and married Mary Emily Renshaw in the same year. The club, meanwhile, were better off and the players better paid, financed by the sugar daddy of the era, John Henry Davies. The fortunes of the club certainly did change. Davies was no patient man, having rid the club of its debts and invested a great deal. He wouldn't settle for poor results. Manager James West was dismissed and to replace him came United's first great boss. Davies appointed Burnley's club secretary, Ernest Magnell, who would go on to win the club its first ever league title and first ever FA Cup, and unlike the Bentleys arriving at Carrington today, he was frequently spotted riding his bike to Old Trafford. He loved cycling, having cycled the length of Great Britain as a teenager, from the tip of Scotland to the trough of England. United were promoted from Division 2 in 1906 and won the league in 1908 before their first ever cup glory in 1909. It was the first great Manchester United team and it had Rocker written all over it. At the FA Cup final of 1909, Rocker's influence on United is clear in so many ways. First of all, there's a great picture of Rocker in his traditional red and white striped pyjamas, a favourite outfit of his for United games, home and away. There's also a set of supporters' pictures holding an umbrella up with Rocker's Brigade written on it in big white letters. This same umbrella was seen in United's victory parade after winning the cup. Rocker was the heart of the club, clearly, but in more ways than this. Every single one of the 11 players who started that cup final against Bristol City was signed by Louis Rocker, the scout. By 1907, it would be fair to consider Rocker as United's official chief scout. Over a few years, Rocker brought in 32 players of the highest quality for a meagre £4,500. Averaging at around £140 per player, this included 11 of the best players in the country through his creativity and persistence as a scout and fixer. The back line of Duckworth-Roberts-Bell was considered to be one of the greatest ever seen in the history of the game at this point. It cost a total of £800. This was nothing even at this time considering that Charlie Roberts, a player himself considered to be good value for money, cost as much as £750. Now armed with money under Davies, Rocker could sign the best. That left United as a fearsome poacher of a club. Rocker was everyone's old pal, but really he was feared throughout the land. The sight of United's fixer figure was not a pleasant one for amateur clubs local to United. His poaching skills were pretty much unstoppable through charm and creativity, as well as determination. The starting 11 in that 1909 Cup final was as follows. Roger, Stacey, Hayes, Duckworth, Roberts, Bell... Meredith, House, Jimmy Turnbull, Sandy Turnbull and Wall. All 11 were Rocker's boys. Sandy Turnbull scored the winner. Known then as the greatest ever head of the ball, or at least that's what Rocker says, Turnbull cost £350. He was tragically killed in World War I in 1917 at the age of 32 and had he not, his record of 101 goals in 247 games for United could have been doubled. Rocker wasn't necessarily the man who brought in every player directly, but he was always involved in some way or another, or it was his men, his organisational structure doing the dirty work. His most trusted associate was Ted Connor, who he worked with for many years, sending him on scouting missions and receiving reports. This was Rocker's scouting setup, one of the first of its kind in England. Rocker had tens of men feeding information to him about Manchester's finest young players. It was the Catholic priests who made up the majority of these men. 
Rocker was part of the Manchester Catholic Sportsman's Club, which is how he first got to know Matt Busby some years later. He employed, for no fee, the Catholic priests of Manchester to tell him of any great players they'd seen in schools, fields or elsewhere. This was probably the case with Johnny Hanlon. Rocker was told of his talents by someone from St Wilfred's Roman Catholic School in Hume. Hannon had played for England in schoolboy internationals and for Manchester boys before, and Rocker brought him in on this recommendation. At 16, he was in United's A-team, facing professional footballers in their mid-twenties. He went on to play 69 times for United, scoring 22 goals. Interestingly, this network of Catholic priests would have far wider ramifications than anyone could foresee. In Manchester, United became the Catholic club. Even though they had rejected the name Manchester Celtic as being too partisan back in 1902, Rocker being a Catholic and employing the Catholic community to help find United the best talent meant that the club became inadvertently associated with the Catholic community. This meant that for many Protestants, even as late as the 1960s, the only choice in who to support was City. Now, it would be wrong to overstate the extent to which United were Catholic and City were Protestant. It was nothing sectarian, but it was just the way things worked for many families. Catholic United and Protestant City. That was it. This network of Catholic priests and trusted men like Ted Connor and others allowed Rocker to run the rule over the best footballers in the Manchester area. Over the years, his influence would grow far wider. Alf Clark, one of the eight journalists tragically killed in the Munich air disaster in 1958, was a great friend of Rocker's and the utter authority on United from the 1930s onwards. He once wrote that, in England, Scotland and Wales, there is not one person in the game who does not know Louis. In addition to the Catholic priests and other trusted men, Rocker would also have batches of local Saturday evening newspapers delivered to his office every Monday morning. He'd go through every report of local junior matches and note down names which kept appearing every week so he could go and watch the most prolific names in Manchester youth football. Later United sides would surpass Magnol's team, but not for a long time, not until Busby's in 1948. This 1909 team was Rocker's work and by this point he'd already been involved with United for a couple of decades. There was 40 years left for his influence to grow further. George Wall was the right winger in that cup final and Rocker signed him after watching him play against United for Barnsley at the old Bank Street ground in Clayton. He would become known as one of the great wingers of his era and ran rings around Bob Bonthron in the first half against United. Bonthron was this no-nonsense defender who was deeply humiliated by Wall. Rocker went into the United dressing room at half-time and asked Bonthorn about this George Wall he'd come up against. In a typically proud fashion, Bonthorn spoke of how he'd get him after half-time and he'd not get past him again. Rocker told him to go easy, because he was going to go and sign Wall for £150. Of course, he did. Wall and Sandy Turnbull made a formidable partnership, netting 39 goals between them in the 1910 season. Harold House had cost £350, Jimmy Turnbull was only £150 and Sandy, as we've said, only £350. George Stacey was £100, Billy Meredith, one of the most influential figures in all of football history, let alone United and a fantastic player, was a measly £150. This was because United had capitalised on Manchester City's struggles. Quite whether Rocker was behind this or Magnol or someone else is not known, but United snatched Herbert Burgess, Meredith and Sandy Turnbull from their rivals on the cheap. Manchester City had been charged with illegal payments to players after winning the FA Cup in the early 1900s and some players were found guilty of match-fixing and Rocker and United capitalised on this. Rocker was an opportunist in some senses but he was also creative and determined in the most genuine sense of the words. That example of him scouring the newspapers every Monday morning shows his creativeness and determination. Once he had his eye on a player, they were coming to United. He once took a train to try and sign a player from the North East. Spotting scouts from a number of clubs on that train, including Liverpool, Rocker realised he had to get to the player's house quicker than any of the others. He did and spoke to the parents. Learning that the player was a minor and was currently at work, Rocker asked his mum if she would be happy if he were to sign for Manchester United. She was, and so he went to the pit, spoke to the manager, and was allowed to go down the mine to get the player to sign forms. And so that's exactly what he did. And so Louis Rocker became the only man to have signed a player for Manchester United and probably any other club halfway down the mine. He was pretty much unbeatable, and he liked people to know it. The next few stories come from Rocker's own writing. Harry Worrell, for example, was a young player in action for Winsford in a Cheshire League game. Rocker had sent Ted Connor to watch him and report back to him. Connor did so and told Rocker of Worrell's talent. Rocker had watched him once before, and with Connor's report backing him up now, decided to go and sign him. But half of the clubs in the country wanted Harry Worrell. 
So the Wednesday after, Rocker went to Winsford. They had a game at 3pm. Arriving at the family home, Rock was told by Harry's father that he was out at his job as a bricklayer. Worrell arrived home for lunch at 1.30 with just over an hour until kick-off and encouraged by Rocker, he pitched into steak, chips, bread, butter and then rice pudding. And as he started his lunch, Rocker writes, I couldn't believe my luck, and then said, Go on Harry, that's the stuff to feed on, you'll show them all how to play. Worrell went on to eat the largest meal that Rocker had ever seen a lad eat and 10 minutes into the game, stuffed full of a Rocker-inspired lunch, Worrell had hardly touched the ball and every scout but Rocker and one other had left. Only the scout from Liverpool remained, having been convinced of his quality previously, like Rocker and Connor. Rocker now just needed to beat one man to Worrell's signature rather than a ten, and the price too was driven down by the fact it was only two clubs interested now. Another food-related signing was Huey McLenahan. Rocker signed him for four freezers of ice cream. That was him utilising his family business, which he'd been running since 1911. By this point, he was one of the most well-known and biggest ice cream manufacturers in the Manchester area, as well as all these roles at United. Huey had been one of the best ever Manchester schoolboy players and had also played for England, but although he was watched by many clubs, he signed amateur forms at Stockport County. He'd been earmarked by United from a very young age. Rocker wanted him now and discovered that Stockport were holding a bazaar to raise funds, as United had done back in 1902. So before doing anything, he told Stockport that Melenahan wanted to leave Stockport to join United. He told them to consider it, and then a couple of days later, he sent a few freezers of ice cream for free to Stockport to sell at their bazaar. A few days after that, Melenahan made his debut for Manchester United. Not a coincidence. Rocker was a poacher. Many lower league amateur clubs banned him from their training grounds and stadiums, so much so that he has to become a master of disguise when scouting. In places he wasn't banned, he'd often take a decoy with him, usually Ted Connor. That was the case with Burt Redwood, who played for United between 1935 and the start of the Second World War. He was signed from an unknown club called Shirley Albion, and they were playing an annual series of medal competition games in the St Helens district of Lancashire. Rock always went to these games and brought Connor with him to act as a decoy if necessary. These competitions always had massive numbers of scouts at them, all aggressively competing to sign the one or two standout players. But Redwood was spotted in a low-quality semi-final where 21 players on the pitch were more brawn than brain, according to Rocker, and there was only one with any idea of football ability. 18-year-old Redwood, described as strong, sturdy, cool as a cucumber and chock full of brains. Rocker realised immediately that every scout would be going for him, with 12 league clubs alone watching the match. He and Ted Connor split up to see who they could talk to about Redwood, and Rocker tried to find where Redwood's father was. He was then told by a spectator that he'd signed for Liverpool already. Obviously, that didn't deter Rocker. He found Redwood's father and stuck with him for hours so no one else could talk to him at all, and he arranged to meet Burt Redwood after the game in the referee's room, alongside his father. But Rocker was later met with a committee of scouts, fans and club officials who chucked Rocker and Redwood's father out of that referee's room. They kept persisting and Redwood's father was eventually allowed in as a hostile crowd gathered outside. Redwood and his dad eventually came out of the dressing room but were followed by 12 angry committee men, pardon the pun. Having to elbow through a now large crowd, Rocker made it to Redwood's house with the player and his parents, intact as well. A Liverpool representative was also there. Eamon Dumphy writes of Rocker that he was resourceful, charming and everyone's old pal and that he knew more about the city and the people of his birth than football itself. This was always a help when it came down to negotiations. He convinced Redwood's dad that he should sign for United and no one else. But Bert Redwood himself was left terrified when the Liverpool scout said he'd be signing his death warrant if he joined United. Redwood was now refusing to sign for anyone at all. United went back the next day quietly through Walter Crickmer on the instructions of Louis Rocker and signed Redwood ahead of Liverpool. King hands the silver trophy to skipper Johnny Carey. Their 4-2 victory, snatched in the last few minutes, gives Manchester United the reward they richly deserve. Perhaps Rocker's greatest signing was Johnny Carey. The Irishman played in every position on the pitch except outside left for United over more than a decade and was the club's first post-war captain, converted from an inside forward to a right-back by Matt Busby. Kerry exuded calmness, confidence and class and the man nicknamed Gentleman John was named Football of the Year in 1949 with Stanley Matthews having won the award in its first year of existence in 48. Kerry broke into the United side in his first season at the club as an 18-year-old playing at inside forward and did fantastically well earning himself a Davy Republic of Ireland cap in the process. 
But it was Louis Rocca who allowed Kerry, this brilliant football man and talent who later became quite a successful manager, to start this career of excellence in English football. While Rocker was an excellent spotter of talent himself, his brilliant record was also helped by the fact that he knew everyone and they wanted to help him. They wanted to know him well. This was how he found Johnny Kerry, the captain of the 1948 FA Cup winning side and title winning side in the early 1950s. People wanted to please Rocker because he was likeable and had a big reputation. Billy Behan aimed for this when he told Rocker of a fantastic Irish player called Benny Gohan he was playing for the famous Bohemians Club in Dublin, and so in November 1936, Rocker went out to Dublin at the advice of former United player Behan, who had played for the Reds for a couple of years in the 1930s. Behan came from a proper footballing family. His dad was William Behan Sr., one of the founding members of Shamrock Rovers. His brothers John and Paddy then played for the Rovers, and his son then did as well. His grandson is Philip Behan, the head of international football at the Irish Football Association. He went on to be United's official chief scout in Ireland and was behind the signings of Kerry as well as Billy Whelan, the Busby Babe, Tony Dunn, Don Givens, Kevin Moran and Paul McGrath. Kerry was the first of Behan's finds, but not quite in the romantic way one could imagine. Rock was in Dublin in November 1936, as I said, looking at Benny Gohan, the bohemian striker who had excited Behan so much. Rocker watched him accompanied by Behan and decided he had to sign him, agreeing to sign him for £200. But he didn't have the cash to pay the fee immediately and couldn't use a cheque because he wanted the transfer to be an under-the-counter style payment, typically at Rocker. So while Rocker went home to get cash, Glasgow Celtic bought Gohan to Rocker's disappointment. Hearing the news, it said that Rocker was nearly crying. Billy Behan had something up his sleeve though and told him to wait a few days. A man or a kid called Johnny Kerry would be playing for the St James's Gate and might interest Rocker. Rocker saw him and paid the same £200 he would have spent on Gohan and so Kerry was a Manchester United player, and would be 344 games later. Rocker was a huge advocate of signing young local players from Manchester and wanted to build a whole team out of these players. I hope to see the day when Manchester United will field almost entirely a local and district side which will hold its own with the best. He would soon be perfectly matched with James Gibson. Rocker's desire to sign young players were for both financial reasons and because of these principles. But early on, it was financial. With United's struggles in the early 1900s, Rocker wanted to bring in youngsters before fees became too much of an issue. This was again true during the Great Depression from 1929 onwards, and particularly so when United dropped into deep, deep financial trouble for the second time. This was in the 1930s, and United needed a saviour again, just as they did with John Henry Davies back in 1902. Because United had tried things and failed, Alf Clark described the situation with the line, United are in Queer Street. Injuries and these financial issues meant Rocker had gone to Manchester City for help. He asked them if they could sign a City reserve team player, a player with what looked like little hope of ever making it at United's local rivals. This was Matt Busby. Paddy Barkley tells the story. Rocker by then would already have known, uh, well he did already know Matt. Matt came to uh, Manchester to sign for City but he became involved in the, you know, the, the what they what they used to call the Catholic Mafia, the you know the Manchester Catholic charitable community, which was very much to do with football. So even then, in in it would be the late late 1920s, Matt and Louis had got to know each other uh, through that, um, because Matt Matt had a very sort of devout Catholic upbringing. The thing, so they they would they they knew each other through then, and if, and 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 Rocker made who was already in charge of club recruitment. So it was he who um, approached City, um, the City manager at the time, Peter Hodge, and and was quoted 150 quid transfer fee, which even in those days wasn't very much for this, you know, reserve midfield player. You know, when he was quoted 150 quid transfer fee, um, Rocker said, "Look, Man United don't have 150 shillings." A shilling was a twentieth of a pound, let alone 150 pounds. So um, that was that was the the death of of Man United's first attempt to sign uh, Matt Busby. Around Christmas time, things were coming to a fore. Rocker had now been joined by Walter Crickmer as the United stalwart in charge of everything at the club. The pair would go on to dovetail as manager and assistant on a couple more occasions through the 1930s and 40s. Near Christmas in 1931. Crickman went to the bank after training to get the players' wages. He was gone for hours and while he was gone, 
Rocky kept the players busy, lying and telling them that Crickmore was just delayed at a director's meeting. But then finally, he had to tell them to go home without pay. United had no money left. He could do nothing to fix that. The long tradition at Manchester United at Christmas was that the club would purchase turkeys for all the players and staff. One player asked Rocker when they could expect it. Another player replied, hopefully, saying, They might ask us to buy our own and charge the club account later. Such hope was well misguided at this time. United were in deep, deep trouble. The United board had asked City for help. City were well and truly the biggest club in Manchester at this time and had been for years. It was like East Germany asking West Germany for help. City did oblige, but in the least generous way possible. They said they'd take three of United's players, Billy Dale, Harry Rowley and Billy Redding, for £2,000. These players were worth nearer 10000 at the time, but this cut price was accepted by the old United board, much to Rocker's frustration. Interestingly, Rocker claimed the United's troubles had started as early as 1911, when United were leading Blackburn in the cup and took their foot off the gas in the second half to allow the Rovers to earn themselves a replay. United lost this subsequent replay, and Rocker says, It was from this point I can date back to the decline of the Reds, and this game had a big factor in it. 1910 had really been United's last good season. James Gibson became Manchester United's second saviour. He wouldn't rename the club or change the club's colours that John Henry Davies had. He wouldn't move the team into Old Trafford, but he would lay the foundations for the Manchester United of today in other ways, with the academy, the train line to Old Trafford, the cliff training ground and Busby and much more. Gibson was long thought to have been encouraged to save United by Louis Rocker, and this may be possible to an extent. Jim White says that's the case in his book Manchester United The Biography, with Rocker convincing Gibson to save the club with a £2,000 gift outright. Rocker doesn't even claim this was him, just saying that the morning after what could be called Turkey Gate, when the players asked where their Christmas turkeys were, as Crickmas returned without their wages, was when United were given a gift by a benefactor. It's actually thought that Stacey Lintott, a leading football journalist of the time, convinced Gibson He'd been having lunch with Gibson, a military uniform manufacturer for many years and admitted in later years that he knew of Gibson's weakness for taking over failing businesses and restoring them to solvency. Gibson was also a proud Mancunian, didn't want to see United, this proud institution of the city, collapse. Gibson's son, meanwhile, has also confirmed the Lintot story and Rockers admitted that Crickmer, not himself, met with Gibson for a couple of hours as United were given that life-saving gift. But it was Rocker and Crickmer who were at the helm of things for United with Rocker helping to save the club once more. Rocker tells a great story of Christmas Day of 1931. Gibson had just promised to save United, but things hadn't started improving yet. Things weren't set in stone. United's reserves were due to play Wolves reserves at Molyneux on Christmas morning. Games and fixtures on Christmas morning and Christmas Day itself were usual at this time. But United couldn't afford to travel the day before and stay at the Victoria Hotel the night before, as they and every other team usually did. So Rocker and Billy Meredith, the ex-United player by this point, arrived at the United office at 3.30am on Christmas morning in the bitter, freezing cold to prepare to take the squad to Molyneux. They toiled for a couple of hours, getting the kits out, getting things ready. At 5am, the players arrived and Rocker took them to Molyneux. He'd asked Wolves to delay the match, but they'd refused. When United arrived in Wolverhampton, Rocker took the squad to the Stafford Hotel. They all had a round of toast and a cup of tea, and on telling the hotel manager of their situation, received great sympathy from the manager. He told Rocker to bring his boys back right after the game and he would serve up Christmas dinner for one shilling sixpence per head. A bargain. The players did get their turkey, after all. Back in Manchester, the first team were facing Wolves at Old Trafford. Rocker, of course, had to wait until he got back to his home city to find out the result. As the team made their way back to Manchester from Wolverhampton, they asked a passing fan, what the score had been and he found out that United had managed a magnificent 3-2 victory with over 40,000 supporters watching. Gibson had made a call to the people of Manchester to show him that United were worth saving before he invested. They turned out in their numbers and he did decide to save the club. Once he had done so, he was insistent that he would not just spend money on United. The minutes of his first board meeting at the very end of 1931 shows a mention of a cults or nursery team for the next season. His reason was, So that a common idea and technique shall unite the junior with the senior members of playing staff. With that, one of the cornerstones of Manchester United was placed down by James Gibson and helped significantly by Louis Rocker and Walter Crickmer. 
Rocker now used his network of scouts using the Catholic priest I mentioned earlier. Now he began his A-team, an under-18 side selected from schools and youth clubs. United didn't hit success immediately with Gibson on the board. It took some years, but in the years leading up to the Second World War, Rocker brought in Kerry, Alan B. Chilton, Johnny Aston, Stan Pearson, John Anderson, Charlie Mitten, Johnny Morris. In 1931, Rocker oversaw United's first ever home-produced player, Tommy Manley. The outside left, who also played at half-back and full-back, made his debut on December 5th, 1931, aged 19. He went on to make 195 appearances, scoring 41 goals, including 15 in the 1936 Division II title-winning side. Rocker would soon sign Johnny Kerry, and also Stan Pearson, United's 12th highest ever goalscorer. Pearson would come from the Adelphi Lads Club. He didn't yet know it, but Rocker was building the foundations for something special at United. His constant ability to find Manchester's and the country's finest young players at a young age was making Manchester United a side to be feared. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The war would intervene, but once it had reached its conclusion, Rocker's hard work would pay off helped by the managerial excellence of one man who he already knew very well. This is London. You will now hear a statement by the Prime Minister. I am speaking to you from the Cabinet Room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received, and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. War was tough for Manchester and for United. As I said at the start, this was the key cog of the Industrial Revolution, and so while the city avoided much of the early blitz bombing as London and Coventry suffered, by 1940, the Nazis began to focus on Manchester too. Before this, United were met with so many great challenges, even if they paled in comparison to what was happening elsewhere in the country. Immediately after war was announced, sporting events were banned. Sports gatherings and all gatherings for purposes of entertainment and amusement whether outdoor or indoor, which involve large numbers congregating together, are prohibited until further notice. Football was suspended on the 8th of September 1939 at the end of the first week of the war. The Football Association said that, until official notice to the contrary, football was not to be played except that organised by the armed forces. By September the 21st, though, the Home Office had allowed a revised programme of football. Crowds were limited to 8,000 in evacuation areas and 15,000 elsewhere. A limited regional league and cup programme was put in place. Most players had already been conscripted and most stadiums were being used by the military or would go on to be bombed. Arsenal's Highbury Stadium, for example, was an air raid precaution centre. 
United's Cliff training ground was a base for barrage balloons and part of Old Trafford had been requisitioned by the military. As many as 33 of United's 40 players were immediately involved in the war effort. Most of those remaining would be needed soon. And in late December 1940, as the Nazis targeted the Hovis Bread Factory in Trafford Park, Old Trafford was bombed. Manchester suffered on that night, with nearly a thousand people killed in the city and in Salford. But Old Trafford did survive, just. Regional football continued at the Great Stadium until March 1941, and then again the Nazis returned, attacking the Trafford Park industrial estate once more and accidentally mounting a fierce attack on Old Trafford, which had stood tall as a point of pride for nearly four decades. This time, there was no luck, and Old Trafford was destroyed. James Gibson cried for the only time in his life. United had no home. They were to play all matches at Manchester City's main road stadium, at some cost, and their offices were now a single small room in James Gibson's Cornbrook cold storage. Rocker and Crickmer were in charge of the club all through this time. This was a third period of severe struggle during Rocker's 60-year association with Manchester United. For Rocker, his own community were also hit hard. He basically had three families. One was his wife and kids, one was Manchester United, and one was the Italian family of Manchester. As Italy joined Adolf Hitler's side in the war, Rocker's Italian compatriots were rounded up by the police and interned, locked up without contact to their families. The Manchester Evening Chronicle of the time says, As many of the Italians returned from their ice cream rounds, they were met by detectives who escorted them to the headquarters. But with the Allies en route to victory by 1944, focus was turning to life after the war. United were going to need a new manager. Now, Matt Busby's without doubt the greatest manager ever lived. We didn't have team talks. They just gave us a ball and said, go out and enjoy yourself. Rocker and Busby were friends. Rocker, the high-profile, charming, well-respected and successful man of the Italian Catholic community, who was of a huge importance to Manchester United, but also to the ice cream manufacturing industry, was a big member of the overall Catholic community. He was one of the more well-known members of the Manchester Catholic Sportsman's Club. Busby would join that club soon after he arrived in the city to play for Manchester City, and Matt and Louis knew each other well. It's likely, or possible, they would have dined together with their wives, and Rocco had also tried to sign Busby back in 1930. They were friends, and that friendship brought Matt Busby to erect Old Trafford in 1945. But Busby had been mentioned before Rocco had sought him out. United owner James Gibson was told of the potential of Busby by his friend, Captain Bill Williams, who was in charge of sport for the Southern Command in the British Army. Gibson visited him in Dorset in 1942, and upon the mention of Busby, Gibson told Williams to keep an eye on him. He'd been sort of noted, but not by many. Uh, He had, of course, been noted by Liverpool, because I mentioned that he was captain of Liverpool, and he was very close to the manager at Liverpool, the Mancunian called George Kay. Rocker would later hear that Liverpool had every intention of keeping Busby after the war. They wanted him to be George Kay's successor, but as Paddy Barkley explains, Busby had no interest in that and wanted something more despite his young age. And, And Liverpool definitely had him marked out um, they'd, during the war that had been contacted. He'd actually played for Liverpool during the war but, uh, and had been contacted. And it was basically assumed there was a gentleman's agreement between Busby and Liverpool that he'd take over as, as number two to George Kay. But he didn't really want to be a number two. Even you know, in his early 30s, he wanted to be a manager. He wanted to be in charge. And so Rocker heard of Liverpool's intentions and decided to try and change Busby's path to Liverpool manager. So he sent him a letter. The matter was too secret to risk it getting into the wrong hands, and so Rocker couldn't send it to Liverpool. Instead, he sent it to Busby's army base at Santa's from his house in Presswich. He said the following. Dear Matt, no doubt you'll be surprised to get this letter from your old pal Louis. Well Matt, I've been trying for the past months to find you and not having your regiment address, I could not trust the letter going to Liverpool, as what I have to say is so important. I don't know if you have considered about what you are going to do when war is over, but I have a great job for you if you are willing to take it on. He continues with some well wishes for his wife and family and says, Now Matt, I hope this is plain to you. He finishes the letter with, Your old pal, Louis Rocker. Busby understood exactly what Rocker was talking about. Busby knew straight away that he wouldn't be, um, you know, he wouldn't be messing him about with an offer of turnstile operator. He, he, as you say, had been under consideration 
since 1942 when, when United Chairman James Gibson had visited this um, old friend down in Dorset and been tipped off that this, this guy was officer material. But when, towards the end of the war, uh, uh, you know, the, this letter arrived from Prestwich, um, from Louis Rocca, um, that really got Busby's blood, blood racing. And so Busby headed north after playing an international game in Birmingham. He was supposedly spending his time off from the army in native Scotland, but stopped off in Manchester at Cornbrook Cold Storage on Hadfield Street. This was James Gibson's offices and company storage house. The pair spoke and decided to make Busby the most powerful manager football had ever seen. He would be in absolute control of coaching appointments, player recruitments and anything to do with the football side of things. He was a trailblazer at the age of 36. Gibson agreed to all of his demands, including a five-year contract on the urgings of Louis Rocca. Busby was a master of management, but his brilliant start at United winning the cup in his first five years and finishing in the top two in the league frequently with a great side was not just down to him. Louis Rocca had spent the previous decade preparing his final great contribution to Manchester United before his death in 1950. He had brought Bill Inglis and Tom Curry in as coaches, two key figures in the Busby era who would be vital to the Scots' management. They were just as important as any other player under Busby. But also significantly was the fact that when Busby arrived, 10 of the 11 players who won the 1948 FA Cup under Busby were already at the club. Just as Rocker had shaped that 1909 FA Cup winning side, he shaped the 1948 side too. Crompton, Kerry, Aston, Anderson, Morris, Pearson, Mitten. Those seven players were products of Mujak, the Manchester United Junior Athletic Club. They were Rocker's boys in one way or another. But the, the quality of, of Matt's, of what was bequeathed by Louis Rocker to Matt, was quite incredible. Busby had arrived with a huge challenge. Manchester United were Manchester's second club. Their stadium was a wreck. But as Paddy Barkley explains, Matt Busby had the luck in the form of Louis Rocker. Louis Rocker and Manchester United's youth policy in general was the best piece of luck Matt ever had. Okay, on the face of it, Matt came to a wreck of a club. The stadium bombed out of use. You know, on the face of it, it it wasn't much of a club, a yo-yo club between the first and second divisions. Um, Definitely lower in prestige than Manchester United. All of these things didn't look too great. But if you looked under the surface, Louis Rocca had signed basically the backbone, more than the backbone of the team that three years into Busby's, less than three years into Busby's stewardship, won the FA Cup in one of the great finals against Blackpool, 1948 top final. Most of those players were already at Old Trafford when Busby arrived. So what a stroke of luck that was. And, and it was Louis Rocker who had masterminded the signing of, or had created this scouting network that produced a generation arguably even greater than the class of 92. You know, really, Matt had ready-made potential. Obviously, he did a great job in making the most of it in that first of his three great teams. But what Louis Rocker passed on to him was probably the greatest stroke of luck of his career. Manchester United, Red and White, Old Trafford, the Academy. These are the cornerstones of Manchester United. These are the pride of Manchester. And every single one of these things was brought in during the time of Louis Rocker. More than half a century of contribution to Manchester United. From a tea boy in the 1890s to the man guarding the treasure of Newton Heath at the 1902 Bazaar to the chief scout of 1907. Rocker was the man who gave Ernest Magnall the tools to become Manchester United's first great manager. He then did the same for Matt Busby. The 1909 FA Cup final and the 1948 FA Cup final are known for other reasons but they had Rocker written all over them. From one financial crisis in 1902 and John Henry Davies, to a second in 1931, to Turkey Gate at Christmas, the Stafford Hotel in Wolverhampton and James W. Gibson. Rocker was an immense force at Manchester United, the constant of the club from 1890 all the way to 1950. He had emollient charm, he was resourceful, inventive, determined and nonplussed by the most disconcerting of events and obstacles. He saw Old Trafford erected and he saw it battered down by the Nazi bombers. He saw United as railway men and chemical workers, 
champions and losers. All of the factors that made Manchester United great happened on Louis Rocca's watch. Louis Rocca had nine children. His tenth was his ice cream business and his eleventh was Manchester United Football Club. Enough to make a football team, which is appropriate, I think. Walter Crickmer described Rocca after his death on June the 13th, 1950. He was the encyclopedia of the club and he had a record unsurpassed in football. Seven years after Rocker's death, this song would come, celebrating the greatest team of Manchester United. When he had first got involved with the club, Newton Heath couldn't afford to even cover their own players' railway fares. They were playing with the smells and tastes of a chemical works wafting over their pitch. They played in green and gold. When he died, Newton Heath had become Manchester United, and that Manchester United had won their second FA Cup, with eight of the starting eleven being his players. Manchester United played in red and white. Legends had been made already like Johnny Kerry, and soon more of Rocker's boys would go on to share that status. So Matt Busby's revolution had begun, and as this song played across the airways in 1957, United were soon to be facing the greats of the world, like Real Madrid. Old Trafford had been rebuilt, and so instead of chemical smells, it was the support of thousands and thousands of loyal United fans who accompanied the team every week. Louis Rocca oversaw the period of Manchester United, which laid the foundations for what we see today. The philosophy of finding local players and moulding them from a young age was one that Rocker bought into so heavily, and without him, United would not be what it is today. From Rocker's Brigade in 1909 to the United Calypso in 1957, I hope you enjoyed the first episode of United Through Time. Next up is a man already mentioned, Harry Stafford, the man who played for, captained and managed Manchester United. This podcast was written, produced and hosted by me, Harry Robinson. Thank you to our guests Tony Rea and Paddy Barkley for their brilliant insight and thank you to the relatives of Louis Rocker for their invaluable help in researching this charismatic man who shaped Manchester United so greatly. If you've enjoyed this first episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share it on Twitter, Facebook or whatever. We'll have one episode every month on one individual. Follow us on Twitter at at UTD through time to keep updated and we'll be publishing a few tales of United's history on our website too at unitedthroughtime.com. Cheers for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.